ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to the second episode of the Outtakes Podcast. I am your host, Tom Hood, and today I am talking to poet, uh, former editor-in-chief of the student-run publication at the College of William & Mary, Bullet Quarterly, Naomi Slack. Just to give some context to a few things that we mentioned throughout the episode, Naomi was one of the first friends I made at William & Mary. I spent my first two years of college at the University of Dallas, where I met my current partner, Sarah, whom we mentioned later on. Um, and after two years, I had to transfer colleges back to my home state of Virginia uh, for financial reasons, as William & Mary is public, that's in-state tuition, all that good stuff. And upon you know coming there, there were a few people that I kind of knew, um, but no one who I was at all close with. And so just to kind of get myself out there, because I knew it couldn't be a complete hermit, I started, you know, going to some groups and uh, Bullet was a publication that really just kind of spoke to me as just a publication in which it felt like we were doing something in which, you know, we were striving towards some goal, which was an excellent pamphlet, booklet, what have you, of poetry, prose, photography, and sketches were the four categories that uh, Bullet accepted, but they all had to be creative nonfiction. Uh, we had many a debate as to what exactly that meant as re was related to uh, poetry, um, and I think occasionally with photography, with uh, Photoshop, uh, although I don't think that was ever really contested as to, oh, this is Photoshop, it's not nonfiction. <laughs> so she was the editor-in-chief of Bullet at the time, and it was just kind of her you know, artistic drive and just personality that kind of drew me to Bullet. And in time, we became very good friends. And I myself became the poetry editor of Bullet Quarterly. Over time, I wound up writing, or not writing, but reading a lot of Naomi's works, uh, especially after she left the publication because uh, she was graduating early. And in that last semester that she was there, she submitted a huge volume of works, um, which I can't divulge the names of because it is an anonymous publication. But I was aware of that fact, although I would usually only be aware of that after she had submitted it. And uh, she would reveal later after, uh, you know, our, our weekly meetings, we would we would talk and she would reveal which ones were hers. And I think, as I mentioned in the podcast, I, uh, I picked up a pretty decent uh, ear for it and could figure out which ones were hers kind of ahead of time. So today, the prompt was essentially I asked her, what was the poem in which you feel like you found your poetic voice? Like, what was an early example of a continuity aesthetically between you then and you now? And what is kind of infinitely more interesting about this question, what makes it so interesting is the idea that even though there is a continuity between your poetic voice at the time, that doesn't mean that there's a continuity between your personalities at the respective times. And uh, that turns out to be quite a stark contrast with her. As uh, it turns out, the pieces that we are looking at, that we looked at last episode and that we looked at today, they actually uh, occurred between like a two-month period when we were essentially the same age and at very similar stages in our respective lives. And it's so interesting just to see, wow, we're really different people and really different cultures and uh, you know what we're putting out is, forgive my lack of creative vocabulary, very different. So without further ado, let me get into the conversation with Naomi. Uh, I thought it was 
great. I thought this was a really good uh, follow-up to our first episode, and I'll be in at the end for some notes. All right, thanks. I'm actually not that excited about it at all. I mean, today's today's the only day that makes any difference, really, just because you you got an extra hour, uh, or at least we did. I don't know about you. We, I mean, yeah, you get an extra. I got an extra hour of sleep, which was nice, but I really, I don't like it. I just don't like that it's darker for more of the time. Like I check sunrise and sunset for tomorrow, and it's. Like I'm, it's only going to be light out when I'm not at work, essentially. So I'm not super thrilled about that. Yeah, or when when you are at work, right? Oh yeah, I meant that's what I meant to say. It's only going to be light out when I'm at work, so that's kind of awful. No, I I agree, and it's a defunct system too. It's it is. Just... We're not farmers anymore. We don't need that. Or and actual farmers don't need it either. Exactly. Um. All right. So. I'm I'm actually unsure of what it is. You didn't divulge the content. So what are you drinking? I am drinking Barks Root Beer because I'm tired and it has lots of caffeine, unlike every other root beer in the world. I, uh, as, as I recall, you have something of an obsession with Barks Root Beer. Oh, yeah. It's the only soda I drink, actually, unless I'm really in a pinch and then I'll drink Dr. Pepper or Coke. But I don't like either of them. So Barks is for when I'm really tired. It reminds me of childhood, which is great. Barks is a very the whole city of New Orleans is obsessed with Barks and glass bottles, as am I. So pretty great. What are you drinking, Tom? I am drinking a polygamy porter. Uh, it's a nitro porter, actually. But yeah, polygamy oh, my, nitro before, porter. I think. I don't think so because yeah I uh, I just discovered it recently, um, oh, cool. but perhaps I have. Um, it is out of Utah actually, Salt Lake City, and um, yeah I've I vary on nitros. I like them as an idea, but I find them kind of gimmicky from time to time. Um, it's a really okay. solid, nice you know well-rounded porter, um, but you know it's uh, I can't say that it's it's you know a a full-throated uh, recommendation. But if you like kind of sweet mild well-rounded uh nitro porters if that's your thing um then definitely check it out it's just not entirely in my world actually as you well know that is exactly my world (laughs) for beer but actually i remember who who recommended it to me my dad did actually he just uh tried it and he said he was going to save me a bottle of it for thanksgiving so i'm pretty excited Okay, cool. So, um, how how did that conversation go down? Was did your dad just go something to the effect of like, "Hey, have you tried polygamy?" <laughs> no, but that would have been hilarious. I think he actually went on a really long spiel about how it had a funny name and how I should not think anything weird, but it's a good beer that I would like before he said that. But he came into some really weird, a large collection of really weird beers and is saving some of it for me. So it should be a very great Thanksgiving. (laughs) Very cool. Yeah, I think another uh, awkwardly titled beverage, essentially, is uh, we're both quite familiar with the wine because I think I think I've had it at my place several times. Um, Menage a Trois and Menage a Trois Midnight. Yes, they're excellent. They are excellent, but when you and your girlfriend go over to a friend's place and you bring a housewarming gift as a thank you for letting you to stay there 
a wine titled Menage a Trois <laughs> might kind of send off the wrong message. Well, it depends it's... on what message you're trying to send, I suppose. Not Menage a Trois. <laughs> it's kind of what I'm implicitly saying, but you know. So you have the poem for today. Um, not that this is specifically a poetry podcast, but we are doing a poem today. Are there specific poetry podcasts? Because that'd be kind of awesome. I am certain that there are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, I will, you know what, I'll look, I'll look it up and, uh, just do a little research. If I find one I like, I'll put one in the show notes. Awesome. Cool. That, that would be great. I would list, listen to it. Yeah. I mean, I, I might, it depends on the, the quality of the podcast, but you know. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. So I don't actually have a, uh, a year on this yet. So if you would, please, uh, tell me the approximate, uh, time when this was written. Actually, I know exactly when it was written. So the final edit that went on it was December 13th, 2010. And it has not been changed since then. Okay. So, and here's a funny thing. So this would literally be um, two months after I recorded Dichotomy, which is the song that we listened to on the last podcast. That's crazy. <laughs> That's awesome. These two pieces are were both um from a very similar time period uh for both of us so we were both uh, 17 uh, high school seniors at the time right um i believe so. yeah we 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 would have been that would have been the first semester of senior year yep Whew, long melodramatic time ago <laughs> <laughs> yeah it it's it's incredible to think in a way just like it how much it is a long time ago because I, I just in my mind for a long time throughout college, there's the feeling of, oh, that wasn't that long ago. Exactly. And I'm reading it now and going, I was 17. This poem is getting its five year anniversary soon. That's insane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and it just I think it's because we view college as kind of a holistic experience where it's kind of all of one piece. We don't understand quite how long four years is because yeah this this poem is reaching its fifth year anniversary sarah and i are mm. coming up on our fourth year anniversary oh that's awesome in less than two weeks and it's it's nuts to think about in a way because um yeah i guess in an objective way four years is a very short time but relative to how long i've lived um it's it's a huge chunk it's like what a fifth of your life just about yeah, I um, I don't really, I guess, to go back to your college comment, I don't really think of college as a holistic experience. It also wasn't four years for me. It was three and a half. Um, but I don't think I've had enough space from college to think of it as one whole block of time period. I do think of high school that way now. So I'm sure I'll get there at some point. But I think of them as individual years still. <laughs> Yeah, it's weird for me because on the one hand, they're incredibly divided because two years was at one college and two years was at another. Yeah. And yet just this, I think just sort of our cultural understanding of college, the kind of structure of feeling around it, it's sort of one amorphous blob to some extent. Yeah. And I think, you know, like I said, as both of us put more years behind it, it will, it will come to be at that point. As articulate as that sentence just was. <laughs> um, okay, so speaking of articulate, let's get into this poem. All right, do you want me to just start reading it? Uh, yeah, let's just uh, let's just read it 
cold for now, and then you'll have the floor to give it some context. Okay. So it's called Downside Up. I'm reclining on the bubble where your thumb meets your wrist, sunbathing in the glow from your face. My hands rest under my head, cushioning it against the tight skin stretched over the bones of your joint. I listen to the music in your veins, and your pulse is my lullaby. Stretches and curls rock me to drifting. Your hand tips, only a little, and I start to slide off our bubble, rolling smoothly into your palm. I try to hold on to a finger, but I'm too small to ring you, and I need to stop falling. I reach the jagged edges of chewed short fingernails, my hand grips slicing my palms. Blood drips into my face, and your upper hand is so high that I'm diving without direction. A whole bunch of asterisks denoting a part two. I am free from falling further, at least, fetally curled here. At the bottom, I am looking up. There is no motion here. Weeks pass before I begin to roll over and face the ground, staring through it, closing my eyes. There is no pressure here. I had not chosen to realize that I am precariously spun out on glass. It splinters a little. Cracks me. What is pressure? And I break for my free fall further than the bottom. What is motion? So yeah, I wrote this when I was 17 about a breakup, and it is very melodramatic um, compared to what that actually felt like at the time. I mentioned that weeks passed. I think I probably felt that way for a couple of days and then was probably largely fine, at least definitely in comparison to myself now. This this was nothing. I I chose this piece in particular because it's kind of the first poem that I wrote where I sort of found my voice in a way, but it's... <laughs> It's very different from what I write like now, but it does get at a lot of the I'm very imagistic to the point with where um, one of the biggest criticisms of my poetry is that it's, in fact, too imagistic and has no plot. Um, This is definitely like that because the whole poem is a metaphor for the end of this relationship (laughs) in terms of me being on it, like held in the palm of the, the person that I was with and then just being, I guess, thrown off of that. Um, so it was a, it was a big deal for me at the time. Um, you know, being 16, 17, being with someone for an entire year and then not anymore is, is a huge deal. It just looking back on it now, it seems very silly. (laughs) For sure. Um, do you, any, uh, Mm -hmm. any further kind of contextual notes you think, or, uh, are we ready to move on to analysis? Again, the reason why I picked this one is just, it's the first praise I ever got on poetry. The first time anyone ever said wow you know this doesn't suck kind of and uh my high school creative writing teacher was the person who gave me that phrase that praise and to quote her and she was joking but she goes heartbreak works for you you should get your heart broken more often Naomi (laughs) so yeah it was it was a it was a good moment and uh that kind of I guess is why I actually started writing in earnest. And I went back and looked through my journals at the time too. And there's, there's one journal entry from the entirety of 2009 and 2010. And it's about this. So uh, I guess that's the, that's the context in which that's this poem is from. So in, in response, as it were, 
I think the real difference that I see here, I mean, number one, having read a, a fair amount of your poetry over time and sometimes not knowing for certain that it was in fact your poetry. Yeah. Bull, bullets fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, but just having to guess, you know, I, I got a pretty good ear for it. Um, an ear, I, I mean, quite literally, it was, it's more apparent when it's read out loud actually than when it's just words on the page. And so if I were still editor of Bullet and, and this was read, I don't know that it, it would set off the same alarms, as it were, the same lights in my head that your current voice, your current poetry does. And one of the defining factors of that, I think, is the sense of really, really, really uh, kind of a show-off-y sort of aesthetic to some extent. Um, I've never, I've never seen or heard, um, that kind of forced alliteration from you. Yeah. I'm really glad I got off that. Yeah. That, that, that was probably the, the one time where, uh, for, for the most part, it's kind of, it's smooth sailing. And that was the one time where the tires kind of squeak and it's like, Oh, you're, you're losing me a little bit, but you, you kind of correct yourself eventually. And then the the metaphors themselves, the images certainly are evocative. Um, and I don't even think that they're they're poorly chosen necessarily, but I think that you now would definitely be more descriptive with a lot of those. So I I definitely appreciate that this is this is a very good example of of a voice developing. You know, it is it's. The vocal cords are kind of getting stretched out, as it were, and and you're sort of settling into one. And there, you know, there's some there's some patches, you know, there's some rough patches, there's some bumps in the road, as it were. But but you're on your way to um, something, you know, pretty pretty pro prolific. Oh, I think just in terms of how my imagery is developed, I I took the hand metaphor way too far. Like I and I also. I think didn't, I definitely had zero concept of the uh, role that, you know, sexual tension plays in a relationship um, just because of the nature that that relationship had. It was more of a friendship, honestly. Um, and I definitely didn't understand that at the time. And I think that comes through in a lot of the imagery in that poem. Um, so I think the that's one of the major differences I see is I definitely wouldn't carry a metaphor that far anymore. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, I think that is a, a trap that a lot of young writers kind of fall into is sort of not quite seeing the difference between metaphor and allegory and, you know, the, the idea of the central metaphor and thinking that if you have that, it will automatically lead to profundity. That if you can right. just get one strong metaphor in there, then that will that will you know guide your poem through to to greatness to some or not even poem necessarily all kinds of different uh, works. Yeah, I I agree. And actually, I just had an idea. So because of the nature of Bullet, which is that it's anonymous and creative nonfiction, which I will actually also note that I pretty much exclusively write creative nonfiction poetry. So this was also the beginning of that. I don't think I've actually written fiction since that poem. Yeah. I mean, bear with me for a second, because what I'm kind of interested in is like, let's, let's go past the art level to some extent, because, you know, we've been talking aesthetics, et cetera, which is definitely appropriate. But now I think who is this person? 
Who is this okay. Naomi Slack, 17 years old, high school senior, who wrote this poem? And, you know, who are you now? Because I, I get the sense that there are definitely differences in, in identity and in worldview, which, you know, would make you effectively just a, a different person. Um, and yeah, just, just as a side note, you mentioned sexual tension. If there's anything sexy or sexual that's supposed to be in this poem, I completely missed it. Like there's, there is an abs, yeah, there's an utter absence of any, you know, eroticism whatsoever. And that, that very much jives with 17 year old Naomi. So I'll go down that that line that makes a lot more sense um oh just just as a side note that doesn't mean that naomi like writes porn now (laughs) that's not at all what that means no not far very far from it in fact Um, but yeah so 17 year old naomi was very stressed out a lot of the time not that that's not a theme in my life still but uh i put a lot of pressure on myself in high school to really uh, perform well and possibly even overperform looking back at it. I went to a fairly high pressure magnet charter, whatever high school that, you know, had a huge emphasis on working hard, but also telling you every day, you're really smart. You can do better than this. And, uh, I really focused a lot on that. I didn't really do a whole lot. I didn't have a typical high school experience with going to, I didn't even go to a party until I went to college. Um, I did, speech and debate and I did my high school literary magazine and I did homework and that was kind of it and that was great for me I had family like friend family within both of those structures and I also dated within those structures uh which is how that came about but I was very closed person at the time I was very religious and I was very rigid with myself. I was, uh, I liked Kant a lot at the time. I was very into universal laws that apply to everyone. And I'm very much less that way now compared to now I'm much less, or at least I try to be, I'm human. I fail at it a lot, but I try to be less judgmental and more accepting of whatever decision anyone wants to make in their lives. That's okay. And trying to also work on being less hard on myself, although that's a lot more difficult. But I, I think that's kind of, that's part of the main difference is just, just being more open to new experiences and trying to put what I feel into perspective. Whereas in that poem, in that experience, there was no perspective at all. It was melodramatic. The the biggest thing that ever happened in the world or the worst hurt that could ever happen. And that's of course, very difficult to conceptualize in the moment. Um, and even, even now, actually, that's probably something that's similar to how I was then, but it's interesting looking back, seeing this this person who has no idea who she's going to be in the future. Um, I'm pretty fond of saying that if past me knew who present me was, she would be very shocked. Uh, just, you know, the how how I interact with the world is a lot less it's a lot less structured. It's I think is the best way to to describe it. I don't know if that gets at what you wanted to talk about or if they're is something some other direction you want me to go um well i'll I'll just jump in here to say like as that as that portrait of yourself at 17 kind of relates to this piece something that i am struck by and i am kind of going out on a limb here but something that maybe is relevant is that this you know this narrator uh that we have in this poem 
seems very passive being you know in someone's hand and that this is something that has happened to her and do you think that maybe that's kind of representative at the time of how you understood relationships how you understood gender at the time of being a recipient uh passive that you know men were doers and women were you know, receivers to some extent, because that that's sort of a, a worldview that I think is is tucked underneath a lot of, of the imagery, essentially, and one which I, I don't find terribly congruent with uh, with your poetic or personal voice now. Absolutely. Um, I actually hadn't even thought to go in that direction because that's a that's a change that has been happening over time for me, but I haven't really thought about it or recognized that it was occurring until recently. Um, but I was absolutely that way. And in this, in this breakup in particular, this, uh, relationship that I was in when I was 17, I, my entire world was this relationship romantically, like emotionally, I guess. I mean, all of the activities that I did were sort of my intellectual world. And then my emotional world was completely focused on this relationship and being with this person who I let have all of this, um, weight, emotional weight, um, I think is the best way to put it. And I definitely, that's a weakness of mine that I have fallen prey to since then. Yeah. So I, and that's, that's definitely under underlying that is gender. Um, I mean, I grew up in the deep South. New Orleans is very different than most of the rest of the deep South, but that's still a mindset that's more prevalent there than I would say in other parts of the country. Um, so I think that, yeah, it definitely, I was not the one making the decisions. I was, I was in that relationship and I was not going to go anywhere and I did not have the power, I guess, is a way to put it, but that doesn't feel like the right way to characterize it. Honestly, that doesn't feel like an honest way to characterize it now. Um, yeah, that, that was definitely a, a gendered issue. And I Especially, I guess, when looking for or at relationships and even friendships, I definitely want to only be in them when I feel equal. And that's partially how just how I think about relationships and how I feel and has nothing to do with whether or not the other person is imposing that kind of a power structure or anything like that, but just sort of, I have a conscious awareness now of that. I, I am in control of my own destiny in terms of being with other people and choosing who I want to be an influence in my life. And actually at the time, I just, I totally forgot about this. I didn't think men and women could be friends at all. I had no guy friends in high school that I didn't think of at the time anyway, as more colleague like, because they were fellow you know, debate competitors or as more like, um, sort of like children in quotes where, you know, I was just be tutoring them and how to do debate, but it wasn't, there were no true male, female friendships that I had at the time that were, were like yours and mine or mine and Jack's there. There was nothing like that. I didn't think that was possible. Right. And just to, you know, press this un <laughs> admittedly uncomfortable subject just a little bit further, I would say that, you know, that that idea of, you know, the 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 man in a relationship having, as you as you put it, the weight, as it were, or, you know, decision making potency that might be greater than their partners. Like what I would just say is that, unfortunately, it seems to be the case that that is still a prevalent attitude, like the idea that. That is not a sign of immaturity. The idea that that is just the way 
things are like that is not necessarily yeah. a problem with that worldview and um whereas you know to to someone like me reading uh this poem that immediately sticks out as ugh, like gross like this is not the way that this should be seen because you know I, on the subject of breakups at some level all breakups are are mutual um and you know there there are varying degrees and sure some people can literally just just storm out and you know take their things and go but those are are quite rare you know most of the time there is there is some element of of mutuality because i mean i have known people who have attempted to um and i'm not saying this is a good thing but i've known people who have attempted to break it off with their significant other and that person simply does not accept the fact that they just said that and what they're oh, saying <laughs> and then the relationship continued it continued for months you know because that person just simply did not accept the reality that their partner was putting forward and uh, interestingly enough in that case um, it, the gender, the presumed gender roles were actually reversed. This guy's girlfriend just did not accept what he was, uh, trying to do. But, you know, in, in this case, I would imagine that there's at least some sense of it being accepted, at least, you know, it, it, it breakups are always mutual or almost always mutual to the extent that the, the person being broken up with accepts the reality of what the other person is saying. Yeah. And in this case, you're right. It was mutual and that I accepted what he was saying to me about it being um, done or finished, whatever, however you want to put it. But I've def remarkably in one case been the person where someone said, it's over, we're done. And I was like, no, we're not. And then the relationship continued on for two or three weeks, um, which is, I mean, I don't regret things as a, as a general rule. And I do mean that, but, uh, I'm not proud that I did that for sure. Um, I, you know, I think if you care about someone that much, you should accept that they want to move on, you know? So yeah, that breakup was not mutual that day, but as I continued to think about it and experience it over the next couple of weeks, even as a 17 year old, I was pretty okay with it being over. Um, I mean, the guy and I are actually friends now, which is great. And past me at the time would be astounded by that. But, you know, um, he's one of my good friends. And excellent. That, that Well, that's good news. Um, and something that I'm struck by, and it's funny, just the proximity of these first two pieces that we have on this podcast is, you know, myself at 17, yourself at 17, um, you know, the, the respective worldviews. And in both cases, we have a sense of the emotion is not proportionate with what the reality that was going on. Like this, this piece is overwrought. It is overdramatic. It is, it is blowing things out of proportion. And I think that the reason why that's the case is because, well, one, it would be kind of boring to be like, yeah, I broke up and I'm kind of sad about it, but ultimately I'll be okay. And I don't hold it against him. Like that's not a, that's not a poem that's going to move someone to tears or something like that. But also, um, I think it's just because, especially at that time, you know, you're, you're obviously, even if you're finding your voice, you're still going to be imitating so much of what's around you. And the most prominent literature and, and music as it were, um, that we consume oftentimes is you know very personal and intense art which is expressive of that person's experiences which are often quite dramatic and you know for for me you know a, a, a 
my personal heroes at the time, you know, were, were sort of the, uh, pardon, you know, the, the kind of term, but the sort of the, the musica verite, as opposed to cinema verite, the sort of the musica verite of grunge musicians who, you know, were really trying to channel the kind of, you know, angst and and despair that they were going through because so many of them were addicted to, you know, heroin or, you know, were depressive and were not diagnosed and weren't getting treatment or something like that. I mean, of course, the quintessential figure was Kurt Cobain himself, and that was so much of what was powerful about uh, In Utero, for instance, was that he wasn't bullshitting. He wasn't pulling any punches. You got the sense that the emotion in the song, the intensity of these songs, were proportional to the fact that this guy was going through just an incredibly dark time in his life of addiction and depression and just almost fatal levels of low self-esteem which you know culminated you know in his in his suicide and so while that is certainly not you know something that we should should hope for we don't want our artists to all kill themselves it is something that you know that 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 nugget of pain as it were when you're when you're going for things about heartbreak that can lead you to such great highs that you want to achieve that, even though you've never been there. I never went through any of the shit that Kurt Cobain went through, but I wanted to be like him. I wanted to make music like him, so I had to blow up my own experiences to just completely fantastical proportions. I completely agree with you, and I think that I wanted—I actually want to draw a distinction, though, between my comment and yours. What I'm getting from the discussion that you're having is is very like comparative between different people. And while you know, I I have never felt what some what Kurt Cobain did, and I've never felt you know the pain that a lot of other people have, and that's where a lot of the art that I really love, beautiful art, is from. I uh, at at the time when you're in that for that 48 hours for that week it feels like the most pain in the entire world and so me looking at it now i will 100% say that's so melodramatic and it i didn't hurt that badly and it was okay and i and i did know that i would be okay at the time but I think the reason why I'm I'm saying that and why I'm looking at it going that wasn't a high high or a low low was because I've experienced things that are just so amazingly wonderful and also incredibly more painful than I did at that time. So we both kind of reached the same end, um, but through very different paths, I think, to that conclusion. Yeah, and it's funny because you know, as as I was discussing now, it's like my my solution has been to turn away from myself entirely. I don't really write about myself or my experiences anymore. You know, I write exclusively fiction screenplays, and my music is all based on either characters I've invented or, or you know, the closest I think that you know we come to a commonality in our fields is when I'll write a song about a historical event, you know, something that actually happened, because that is, you know, a, a creative nonfiction. Kind of idea but it's never from right. this place of you know this is myself this is my you know my life and my personal experience that i need to get out there um it's always the idea of you know this is a story that i think deserves to be told and maybe just maybe i have the right voice to tell it 
Absolutely. And you make beautiful art doing that. I wouldn't change what you're doing with it for the world. I'm like probably your, I would say your number two or three fan just because like there's Sarah and Jack in the mix, obviously. Yeah, I think that uh, that is a very good way to highlight how we went in opposite directions because I obviously started exclusively writing about myself. I think I got the advice somewhere along the line to write what you know and then got positive reinforcement and just stopped writing things that were not things I had experienced past that point. And I actually kind of want to get into that now. I kind of would like to write fiction and see what that's like. Because for a long time, I had a huge fear, actually, of writing fiction and that it would be terrible because I, I'm i actually still terribly afraid I don't know how to write a plot at all. <laughs> but uh, you figure that out by trying to do it, right? So um, maybe maybe I'll do that sometime in the future and we can have another episode of this podcast where I read you one of my horrible short stories from when I was like a freshman in high school. <laughs> oh, wonderful. That sounds great. <laughs> Well, and thank you for the kind words. By no means, just as a disclaimer, I was not in that statement trying to fish for compliments as much as it may have sounded like that. Oh, you didn't you didn't sound like that at all. You just know that I'm a great positive reinforcer. That that you are. Being enthusiastic with your with your art. And what a contrast from Jack, who was just so excited to uh, rip me to shreds or <laughs> rip 17-year-old me to shreds and was disappointed by the fact that I kind of beat him to the punch. Oh, man. Well, I mean, 17-year-old you, 17-year-old any of the three of us, actually, would probably has a lot of fodder for being ripped to shreds. You were very kind to me and did not rip me to shreds, actually. I'm surprised by that a little bit. Well, I mean, on the one hand, but, I, I think I think this poem is on an objective level better than, you know, the stuff I was doing at the time. But also just, you know, like I said, this this isn't about, you know, schadenfreude or anything like that. Um, I, I'm more oh, yeah. interested in, you know, the differences in worldview. Yeah, I mean, this is not like the worst example. I could have picked the worst poem I wrote at the time. I mean, one of them that I was reading through was about getting ready for a debate tournament, but like literally putting on pantyhose and spraying my hair like it was so bad. Um, but it was nothing like what I write now. So it wasn't really uh, this was more topical. Yeah, although I mean, to me, honestly, you know, that that kind of appeals to a sort of hyper-realist kind of aesthetic, which I won't, you know, completely ascribe myself to, but which I kind of appreciate if we're talking about, you know, a genuineness of emotion. That's something that actually happened, you know? That yeah. <laughs> you actually did go through that experience. So to me, well, that actually doesn't sound all that bad, but, you know, everything ultimately kind of boils down to execution. Yeah, it was executed really poorly, again, with the really overextended metaphors and yeah, <laughs> it's just artistically not done well. And it's actually it took me a little while to realize what I was writing about because it is so poorly written because <laughs> I think I was trying to be mysterious or vague or something like that. And it just doesn't. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, there's no like deeper meaning. It's like in that in that preparation, it's not like it's a metaphor for like you venturing out into the adult world or anything like that. It's just this is a nope. thing I do. Yeah, literally, I'm spraying my hair and ow, I just nicked myself with the zipper because I did that a lot. And yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm um, I think this was productive. I think this was uh, a, a cool look back into a uh, a time period 
um, which, as it turns yeah. out, is is the same time period we dealt with last time, but in a, in a in a different part of the world, in a different part of America, at least. Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have any kind of closing comments on this piece? I don't. I really, I will say the whole overall experience is much less terrifying than I thought it would be initially, which uh, says something about your wonderful hosting skills. Um, but again, you're not fishing for compliments. It's just me. But uh, it's, it, I think it's also something just to do with having a real, as objective as possible, look at who, who I was and where I've come since then. So I'm looking forward to doing this more in the future. If you'll have me again, it was super fun. Absolutely. And, and that, that's, that's what we aim to do every day is give, give a little bit of objectivity to the past. And, and for me, at least, you know, uh, schadenfreude is always fun, but I, I actually want to try to remove a bit of the cringe element so that, you know, we can have more of a, a, a human experience with, you know, this, this old, old you which uh no longer really exists no i uh, yeah <laughs> so um it is time for our honorable mentions do you have an honorable mention naomi what are the honorable mentions again is this where i recommend things yeah just something that you've been digging recently uh band album podcast movie anything okay uh well there's a couple i'm gonna mention a couple of things because you mentioned six last time and the podcast listener in me was at first incensed and then very intrigued so uh i'm gonna start with uh what i've been reading i have been in the middle of uh, american gods by neil gaiman for a long time now but i just picked it up again this weekend and it's amazing i really like his writing style and a lot of the larger themes he gets at so i think it's wonderful it's not a new book but it's it's great and uh sorry just um is anansi boys the prequel or a sequel to american gods or i, I, I they're related no in some idea. way okay i think they're related in some way and neil gaiman uh author of the sandman comics as well as yes. co-author of Good Omens with the Discworld series writer Terry Pratchett, which is sitting on my bookshelf right now. Oh, cool. I mean, this is the first book I've ever written to him, uh, rather <laughs> read by him. Wow, Naomi. Uh, That's uh, a great idea for a project, <laughs> to write a book to Neil Gaiman. This whole yes, book is intended be to be a letter to Neil Gaiman. I might actually do that. That sounds fun. <laughs> but yeah, that was recommended to me, and I'm just completely blown away by it, so... I'm not at the end yet, but I really enjoy it. Uh, the As for the music I've been listening to, I have two recommendations. There's an artist by, whose name is Pell, who's actually originally from New Orleans, but moved away after Katrina to Jackson, Mississippi, who's going to be dropping a new album sometime early this month. I'm not sure the exact date, but uh, he has a song called Monday Morning on that album that is insanely catchy but also is the exact right song to put you in the right headspace to go to work on a monday morning even if you don't want to and uh my one of my favorite artists of all time san Fermin, uh just released a cover of a stroke song that is absolutely amazing and on their soundcloud page which i can give a link to tom to put in the the show notes and then things I've been watching, I uh, just saw the movie Rope, which is a Hitchcock film, which was absolutely amazing and uh, was philosophically really interesting for me as well. Uh, so I recommend all of those things. Um, my honorable mention is just one thing, but it's it's by way of probably mentioning a couple other things. Um, my honorable mention is a band that just came back, actually, with a new single um 
earlier this year, in fact, I think about a month ago now, uh, the band is Sky Hill, and they were a Brooklyn-based um, experimental rock group. Um, not not to say that their song styling is very experimental. They're actually quite accessible and kind of catchy, but I guess uh, alternative rock, if you like stuff like Depeche Mode or Massive Attack, you'll probably like them. Um, and in 2007, they released one album called Run With The Hunted, and then uh, they split shortly after that, um, and that was in 2008, I think. And then after that, um, the reason why anyone even knows about this band, because it was very small at the time, is because uh, the the lead singer for this band, Dan Avedon, went on to form the much more popular Ninja Sex Party, which then also became... Oh, yeah, you love them. Yeah, which then also... Uh, he has another project called Starbomb, which is a uh, similar style, but all about uh, video games, like video game humor, etc. Um, and Sky Hill is very different. Sky Hill was before uh, Dan went on to pursue comedy. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people kind of work their way back through that because they're so struck by even in his silly songs uh, in Ninja Sex Party, there's a lot of compositional um, I think just effectiveness and it just a lot of calculation that goes into his very impressive harmonizations and background vocals. You know, he'll just stack five, six, seven vocal tracks back on himself, harmonizing at every single beat and, and giving these interesting little background vocal flourishes. And people were so struck by that singing technique, I think, that they traced him all the way back to uh, this old band and um, then Run With The Hunted started getting some more uh, some more traction and started picking up. And then eventually uh, Dan and the other uh, member of the band, Peter Lennox, then uh, reconvened to release their newest single called Firefly, um, which is out now, and they're probably going to be making some more music in the future. And I think it's just a really cool story of um, that there's this sort of artistic passion that you can really feel in the original album that um, unfortunately just just wasn't there at the time. It just didn't really break through for, I'm sure, just a number of different circumstances. But that the, the rallying point, and they, they'll say this, you know, the whole reason why they got back together as a band is because of, you know, stuff like r slash Skyhill, you know, the Reddit page and fan pages and stuff like that of people, you know, finding this, this really unique kind of album back in the day. And so I actually am in the process of recording a cover of their song Black and White. Um, I am almost done with it, just need to lay down some backing vocal tracks, and then that will be out on Tuesday on my SoundCloud, uh, my personal SoundCloud, and then I'll link to that on Wednesday when this comes out. Well, awesome. I'm definitely going to go listen to them. I like uh, I like Ninja Sex Party. Every time you've played it, it's been great. So I'll have to go take a listen as well. Excellent. Uh, yeah, very, very different tone, but uh, the same really uh, interesting voice and uh, vocal melodies and harmonies. So I'm, I'm sure that you will dig that. Awesome. I mean, you know, I'm a sucker for harmonies and you actually have yet to lead me astray with a musical recommendation, even though I may not like it immediately as you've recommended it. You've sort of everything you've liked has even though it's taken some time in some cases has i've recognized the the worth in it by this point so um yeah because (laughs) because i mean you're you're now you know a full-on you know kendrick lamar supporter i don't know if i've entirely uh if you're entirely on the on the train yet like i don't know if Nas has really sunken in 
for you yet. I haven't explored Nas yet because I went on a detour with Lil Wayne because he I should have gone on a detour with the his music a long time ago because that's all they played at my high school homecoming dances and I had no idea. <laughs> my dad was in a movie with him. I had no idea. Uh, Whoa. Yeah, yeah. My dad is way too cool for me. It's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> But so I, I went on a brief detour through that. But now that you're telling me Nas is the next direction to go, I'm I'm gonna go that go that route. I think the only other one that I've listened to, uh, like rap artist at all, is what's that other one you recommend? That it's a song. I think it's called Jazz. It's got a blue cover. You played, yeah, that- uh, Mick played Jenkins. It? Yes, I've listened to one of his albums, um, and I enjoyed that as well. Okay, so yeah, Mick, Mick Jenkins is a uh, Chicago rapper. Uh, he has his debut mixtape, uh, The Waters, which is out right now. And then he also dropped an EP recently called Waves. Okay, I listened to The Waters because uh, you played it at the at the screening of Doppelganger. Um, just to plug your plug your movie again. <laughs> one, one more time. Yeah. I've got to I've got to refrain from linking that in the show notes every single fucking time, but maybe maybe one more podcast I can you know, get away you could, with it. Just that could be a trope for this podcast. Every single time we talk about your movie, <laughs> and I will manage to bring it up every time. Who who'd have thunk? <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, it's a good horror film, so um, yeah, it was not actually even on my list. I I chose I chose unedited footage of a bear over my own short film for best uh, horror short film for Halloween. Well, I feel like that's a good move given how narcissistic you can be sometimes. I mean that jokingly. <laughs> I didn't even that didn't even register for me because it's so fucking true. But no, I mean <laughs> the uh, production values at the very least are, are far better for unedited footage of the bear. Go check that out too. Um. Okay, I'll, I'll work on that. As you know, I have never seen any movies, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, I really had a lot of fun. It was great. Thanks for having me. I'm glad, and I'm uh, sure we'll have you back in probably just a week or two, if that's cool with you. Oh, yeah, totally. I'm psyched. All right. Thank you so much. conversation with Naomi. Um, Something that I really enjoyed about our conversations in general and also on this podcast is just she's a very conscientious person, so she really takes the time out to answer questions completely. Like, she very much doesn't like to get sidetracked, and so will answer questions very thoroughly, which is kind of an interviewer's dream come true. And it was a lot of fun this time around, you know, being in the role of an interviewer, because last time I kind of had to prod myself for answers, because, of course, the content was mine, whereas this time I was able to, you know, push all of that out and ask all the uncomfortable questions of other people. So today we rode in on George Watsky's Show Must Go On, which is off of his uh, Live from the Troubadour uh, EP, or live album, I guess, uh, which is for free on his Bandcamp. Watsky is an independent uh, San Francisco-based slam poet 
and rapper. I really enjoy uh, Cardboard Castles, which was his sort of full-length, not debut because he did one very early on, but one which kind of ushered in a sort of renaissance of uh, Watsky's music and, you know, just the production values and songwriting style. Uh, so I definitely check that out. And he also has a newer one, which I didn't care as much for, but still has some solid songs on it called uh, All You Can Do. Now, and I included Watsky because unlike what I was talking about earlier about people blowing things out of proportion or something like that, Watsky actually is really great at using real life examples, which might not be fantastical necessarily. You know, this song he mentions a middle school dance or something like that. But he has a way of taking these small moments, these sort of you know, you wouldn't think they would be necessarily dramatic moments and turning them into more meaningful artistic expression, uh, which is a sort of grounded quality that I really appreciate about his work. And we're also going to be writing out on another tune of his um, 100 words you could say instead of swag, which is just a fun, creative, little, very English major kind of song, which I really dug. I also just want to point out that uh, I actually forgot to say all points in between uh, in the intro, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and all points in between, I actually do mean that uh, in the sense of I want it to include everyone, including people who may not necessarily be gender binary. I know that's not a lot of people, but they do exist, so I definitely didn't want to leave that out. So sorry about that, and I'll remember to do that next time. Um, and now it's time for me to plug things. Um, so you can find all this in the show notes. Um, I made a little music video, just a recording of myself making the song Zodiac, um, which I released last week around the same time as the podcast, uh, so you can check that out. Also, I mentioned my cover of Black and White by Skyhill. That should be coming out on Tuesday, um, so a little bit before the podcast, but I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, as for questions, comments, or submissions, email me at outtakespodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Parabola1236. All right. Thanks. Swag. 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 I thought swag was dead way before this. I thought swag had been buried in the forest. But then Bieber said swag in a chorus, and I went and bought a big fat thesaurus. I thought swag was dead way before this. I thought swag had been buried in the forest. But then Bieber said swag in a chorus, and I went and bought a big fat thesaurus. Here's some other options. You're a boss hog. You're a top dog. You're so slamming that I would say you got pogs. You're suave, swell, sick, in the sense of being ill, chill, slick. You're hip. You're a hit. You're the tits. You're it. If I were being rude, then I would say you're the sh- Shimmy, shimmy, Cocoa Puffs. You're so loco, you're so dope, it's nuts. You're as raw as an open cut. You're bold, you're golden, you're funner. A stone cold stunner, a real mean mugger. You're colder than the other side of my pillow, or hot as the underside of a cover in a Los Angeles summer. You're not dumb and dumber. You're smart and smarter. You're hard and harder. You're Peter Parker, right after the spider bite. You're so dynamite. You're the brightest light. No, you're the hypest hype. You're so zen, you're a 10, you're a gem. You're the creme de la creme de la creme de la creme. 1860, Walt Whitman wrote, I cock my hat as I please, in his famous poem, Leaves of Grass. In 2012, Justin Bieber said, swag, swag, swag on you, chillin' by the fire while we eatin' fondue. I don't know about me, but I know about you. Say hello to falsetto in three, two, swag. I thought swag was dead way before this. 
thought swag had been buried in the forest. But then Bieber said swag in a chorus, and I went and bought a big fat thesaurus. Said again, I thought swag was dead way before this. I thought swag had been buried in the forest. But then Bieber said swag in a chorus, and I went and bought a big fat thesaurus. Swag. Presence, essence, pizzazz, panache, dashing, flashy, present, and brash. The verb, the nerve, the truth, the proof, the cash, the passion in class. Better than ever. Cool as a cucumber, smooth as a butter, a little bit smug. Hotter than a mug. Eye of the tiger, the heart of a leg, and the look of a thug. Pick of a lid of the attitude, the clean pitter, the baddest dude. Totally sure, full of allure, a rack and tour, the poison and cure. Grab a test climber, you're dropping the hammer, a swashbuckle, like debonair. A lister with X factor, a capital G with the best hair. Dragon Slayer, the franchise player, the king, the president, governor, mayor. You're rare, the opposite of square and pompous. You're shaped with flair like a rhombus, competent jaunty, awesomely saucy. You got more props than Gandhi, got it unlocked. Rocks and moxie, your rocket's a brand new soxies. From city to city, the grittiest kid, and he could be a little bit cocky. But saying swag is obnoxious. And if you be looking to capture the confident way that I'm walking and talking, there's options. Just say, he's got Watsky. I thought swag was dead way Good. before this. I thought you swag really had been to. buried in the forest. But then Bieber said swag in a chorus, and I went and bought a big fat thesaurus. Said again, I thought swag was dead way before this. I thought swag had been buried in the forest. But then Bieber said swag in a chorus, and I went and bought a big fat thesaurus. Swag. Swaggy. Maybe I'll climb the swag road crag. Like, swagger culture. Don't get me swaggravated though, bro. Take a, take a barrel over nice swagger falls, feel me? Just hella swaggy though all day, you know? Son, it's just like, it's a lifestyle, you feel me?